Hi, my name is Tanaz Kermani. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Division of Rheumatology at the University of California in Los Angeles. I'm also the director of our multidisciplinary vasculitis program. Our topic for today is large vessel vasculitis. We're going to start out first discussing the primary forms of large vessel vasculitis. So large vessel vasculitis is defined as any vasculitis that affects the aorta and its branches. We have two main forms of large vessel vasculitis, the first being giant cell arteritis and the second, Takayasu arteritis. There are other autoimmune conditions like relapsing polychondritis, Bichette's disease, Kogan syndrome, IgG4-related disease, which can affect the aorta and its branches uh, and look like large vessel vasculitis or I should say cause large vessel vasculitis. However, these are different systemic conditions. They're not primary forms of large vessel vasculitis. The other challenge we often encounter is sometimes after resection of an aortic aneurysm, typically the thoracic aorta, the surgeon sends off the tissue and then the histopathology comes back as being consistent with granulomatous aortitis or what they interpret as giant cell aortitis. Usually, the patients get referred to rheumatologists. We take a detailed history. We cannot find any preceding signs, symptoms that suggest giant cell arteritis, Takayasu, polymyalgia rheumatica, or any of the conditions that can cause this. This is called idiopathic or isolated aortitis. It probably is in the spectrum of large vessel vasculitis. The Chapel Hill Consensus Conference, which provided definitions for vasculitis, looks at this as a single organ vasculitis. But further studies are underway to clarify this. The next topic we're going to transition into is some of the challenging clinical manifestations of the two primary forms of large vessel vasculitis, which is giant cell arteritis and Takayasu arteritis, and how to approach the management. So as all of us know, the dreaded complication for giant cell arteritis is vision loss from involvement of the branches of the ophthalmic artery. Unfortunately, vision loss, once it occurs, is irreversible, and if not treated promptly, uh, it can also affect the contralateral eye. So this requires high clinical suspicion for giant cell arteritis and also the immediate initiation of treatment with systemic steroids, which all of us know should not be delayed while we're waiting to confirm the diagnosis. Vision loss, once treatment has been initiated, is rare, thankfully. Rheumatologists are all very aware of this possible complication and the importance of starting treatment immediately. However, we frequently also encounter other manifestations of giant cell arteritis. Some patients present as fever of unknown origin. Others can come in with anemia, elevated markers of inflammation, weight loss. They've often been evaluated by their physicians and hematologists because they suspect cancer, but then it turns out to be large vessel vasculitis. There's also a subset of patients who come in with symptoms of vascular insufficiency, typically of the upper extremities, with upper extremity claudication. So as rheumatologists, we all need to be aware of these other less frequent presentations for giant cell arteritis, and also realize that it's important to consider large vessel imaging like CTA, MRA, in some cases, if feasible, a PET scan, so we can get a diagnosis. Oftentimes, patients with upper extremity arterial disease can be biopsy negative, up to 
40% or higher in some series. So the only way to establish a diagnosis in this subset would be imaging. More recently, we've also become aware of large vessel complications of giant cell arteritis in studies that systematically image newly diagnosed patients with GCA, even those who are asymptomatic. We see abnormalities of the aorta and branches in 30 to 74%, depending on the imaging modality that's used. A study using a multicenter cohort of patients with large vessel vasculitis from the Vasculitis Clinical Research Consortium showed that examination has very poor sensitivity at detecting these large vessel complications compared to CTA or MRA. And then multiple recent studies have come out which have shown that patients with extracranial manifestations of giant cell arteritis tend to have more relapses, longer duration of treatment, higher cumulative glucocorticoid doses than the ones who come in with the typical cranial manifestations. So again, we need to be aware about these manifestations and also consider large vessel imaging when appropriate. The other issue when we're managing patients with GCA is relapses. We know this frequently requires increase in steroid doses, which is very frustrating for patients who have to deal with the side effects of long-term steroids. However, tocilizumab, which is now FDA-approved, is an efficacious treatment, and thankfully, we now have an alternative to increasing steroids uh, for patients with GCA. For Takayasu arteritis, there are also many unique challenges. This is a young subset of patients who often require chronic steroids. And in this condition, oftentimes discontinuation of steroids can be very difficult, even after we add other medications. The other challenge is whether we can assess Takayasu disease activity. In the US, most of the experts will rely on imaging studies like MRA to look for new areas of involvement. We know that signs and symptoms, laboratory findings are often nonspecific. Some of the manifestations of Takayasu arteritis that are challenging to treat are renovascular disease and hypertension. This requires a multidisciplinary approach because many of them will have blockages to the subclavian arteries, narrowing of the abdominal aorta and branches like the iliacs, femoral vessels, which can make assessment of blood pressure measurement very challenging. The blood pressure should be monitored in an unaffected limb, but that's not always possible depending on the extent of disease. The next issue is these patients also often have stenosis or occlusions of the carotid and vertebral arteries. If you are doing very aggressive blood pressure management, it aggravates their symptoms like dizziness and lightheadedness. Sometimes these patients come in with acute presentations like stroke, heart failure, which can result from aortic dilatation, aortic regurgitation, or malignant hypertension. These patients should be hospitalized with prompt management of disease activity, use of glucocorticoids, and if needed, urgent surgical intervention. Patients with Takayasu arteritis will often have persistent symptoms like dizziness from vessel damage or claudication of the arms even after they are treated. This requires coordination with vascular specialists and surgeons. In some cases, they may need surgery to address their symptoms because medical therapy is not going to be efficacious to treat vessel damage. Unless there's an emergency, surgery should always be undertaken only after disease is quiet because multiple studies have shown poor patency in patients who are of active 
Takayasu arteritis. These patients are young women. Pregnancy plans are often brought up as well to physicians. This has to be individualized based on assessment of disease activity, what medications they are taking, the severity and extent of involvement. All patients should be counseled, of course, to discuss any plans for pregnancy with their physician, and understandably, we do not recommend pregnancy in patients in the context of active vasculitis. They all need to be counseled about this. Furthermore, they need to be counseled that some medications may not be safe for pregnancy, and medications have to be appropriately managed prior to any plans for pregnancy. Moving on to some of the challenges in managing GCA and Takayasu. After a diagnosis is established, oftentimes we're having difficulty assessing disease activity. We use a combination of patient symptoms, markers of inflammation, in some cases imaging to guide us, but these are not perfect. Some of the tests like markers of inflammation are actually not very sensitive depending on the condition. The other big challenge is medications that maintain remission, prevent relapses, and further vascular damage. At least for GCA, now we have tocilizumab, which is an efficacious therapy. For Takayasu arteritis, the treatment is more challenging. Oftentimes, again, we're not able to taper steroids without relapses. We usually start off with steroids, then add DMARDs, and then consider biologic therapies like anti-TNF or tocilizumab. But recently published ULAR guidelines for management of large vessel vasculitis recommend that all patients with Takayasu be started on DMARDs with high-dose glucocorticoid therapy. I'm now going to give you an example of one of the challenging cases that highlights our uh, difficulty with disease assessment. So I've been following a 74-year-old lady for over six years now. She was diagnosed with extracranial giant cell arteritis. She presented with elevated markers of inflammation, was undergoing malignancy workup, underwent a CT, which showed thickening of the aorta and narrowing of several of the branches, which is how the diagnosis was made. We put her on treatment with prednisone, and she was actually able to successfully discontinue prednisone without any signs or symptoms of active disease. Large vessel imaging that was done to assess disease activity all indicated her condition was likely in remission. Then a few months after she stopped prednisone, she started to develop rapidly progressive left lower extremity claudication. She underwent imaging which showed a long segment of stenosis in the left superficial femoral artery. When you see something like a long, smooth, tapered segment of stenosis, that's very suspicious for vasculitis. She did not have other traditional cardiovascular risk factors, and her symptoms were rapidly progressive, which is more typical for vasculitis. So we put her back on steroids, and this time methotrexate was added as a steroid-sparing medication. This was before tocilizumab was approved. She continued to have symptoms, so she saw our vascular surgeon. After several months of being on treatment, a balloon angioplasty of the left superficial femoral artery was performed, which helped her symptoms. One year later, she had recurrent left-sided symptoms in the same place where she had previous procedure, Another angioplasty was done, but this time when the surgeon did the angiogram, he noted a new lesion at the right superficial femoral artery, which was not present the previous year. Again, clinically, it looked like vasculitis was in remission on methotrexate. 
given this finding, I had to presume she had new activity because she was developing new lesions. She was put back on steroids. This time, tocilizumab was added. She was continued on methotrexate. Eventually, we were able to taper off prednisone, discontinue methotrexate. She had to have another intervention to the right superficial femoral artery, but for the last two years, thankfully, her disease has been stable in remission. She remains asymptomatic. So here's one of the cases where clinically it can be difficult to assess disease activity. Oftentimes, if we're seeing new lesions, that's the only way we know there's been some activity and also highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary approach because she did require evaluation with our vascular surgeons and procedures to help with her symptoms of claudication. Some of the treatments that are currently underway uh, for these two challenging conditions are discussed now. The success of the tocilizumab clinical trial called GIACTA, um, which resulted in tocilizumab being the first FDA-approved treatment of GCA, has now paved the way for many more studies. As opposed to Takayasu arteritis, where we don't know much about the pathogenesis, we have a good understanding of the pathogenesis of GCA. This allows us to study multiple targeted therapies. There was a small double-blind study that showed efficacy of abatacept in GCA. Another small open-label trial has found efficacy of ustekinumab in GCA in patients who are having difficulty tapering prednisone despite other immunosuppressive therapy. Currently, some of the therapies that are being investigated are alternate interleukin-6 inhibitors, given the success of tocilizumab, but also other targets, including interleukin-17 inhibitors, small molecule inhibitors of the JAK-STAT pathway, like baricitinib and upadisitinib. For Takayasu arteritis, we have very limited knowledge about the pathogenesis. There's also a lot of challenges in clinical trial design, given rarity of the condition and absence of standardized outcome measures. A study from Japan evaluated tocilizumab but did not meet its primary endpoint. However, the medication did appear to have some steroid-sparing effect. Based on clinicaltrials.gov, the current medications being investigated in Takayasu are tocilizumab and other conventional immunosuppressive therapies like lafunamide, mycophenolate-mofetil, cyclophosphamide. However, there are other biologics that are of interest. A genome-wide association study showed polymorphisms in interleukin-12 as a risk factor for Takayasu arteritis. As a result, something like ustekinumab may be of interest in Takayasu arteritis, but we only have a case report so far, um, so not enough data. In terms of prognosis, there are multiple studies that have shown patients with giant cell arteritis are at increased risk of myocardial infarctions, strokes, peripheral arterial disease, and even venous thromboembolism compared to age and sex-matched controls. In some of these studies, the risk of these events was higher in the first year. This suggests contribution of active inflammation or vasculitis to some of these events. The other important thing to keep in mind is patients with GCA are at increased risk of aneurysms and dissections compared to the general population. Also, these aortic complications occur later, and at least two studies have shown that the risk of aortic aneurysms increases more than five years after their initial diagnosis. A recent study with a large number of patients from Mayo Clinic that looked at 
uh, aneurysms from giant cell arteritis versus non-inflammatory causes found that patients with giant cell arteritis likely have a higher aneurysmal growth rate and may also dissect at lower sizes than degenerative aneurysms. So something we need to keep in mind, especially since oftentimes the patient may have completed treatment and may no longer be following with their rheumatologist. However, they need to be counseled about this risk. For Takayasu arteritis, we have studies showing premature coronary and arterial calcifications compared to healthy controls. Patients can also develop uh, aortic aneurysms from previous inflammation, and these need to be monitored and managed as well. So in summary, I would like to conclude stating that it is important to recognize large vessel manifestations of giant cell arteritis and evaluate suspected cases with appropriate large vessel imaging if needed. Tocilizumab is an efficacious steroid-sparing medication for giant cell arteritis. In Takayasu arteritis, most of the data for biologic therapies is with anti-TNF therapy, but tocilizumab is also of interest. And finally, patients with giant cell arteritis and Takayasu arteritis require monitoring for long-term complications like aortic aneurysms and also a multidisciplinary approach with a team of specialists, including vascular specialists, to help. Thank you for your attention.